with me to Luke chapter 18. Uh, I'm not sure what uh, number that is in the Pew Bible, but look over to the right-hand side, find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, and then turn to chapter 18. And I want to bring you a, a message this morning that I've entitled, The Way into the Kingdom. The Way into the Kingdom. It's an appropriate text for this morning. In light of uh, Jaden coming here this morning, uh, if you will remember the last time we were together, we looked at uh, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to pray in the temple. And in that story, Jesus spoke about the most revered person in Jewish society in that time, and that was a Pharisee. As someone who was personally very confident of his status and of his deeds before God, but he ultimately left this time of prayer not declared right with God. But there was a tax collector, and the tax collector was the most despised person of Jewish society and uh, recognized that he had no claim because of his status. He had no good deeds to commend himself to God, and he had just simply cried out to God for mercy. And what does Jesus say about him in verse 14 there? He says, he went down to his house justified. In other words, he was declared right with God. He was the one that was forgiven, accepted, and pardoned. And so Jesus has just pictured one man who thinks that his status and his good deeds can mend himself to God, and and it gives him a right of entry into the kingdom of God. And one man who denied his status or his deeds and any claim over God, but only pled for God's mercy. And Jesus' point was that the man who pleads to God's mercy is the appropriate example for us and our posture before God. And really, our text this morning today is just a a replication of that message in that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they come to him helpless and in need. In other words, no one cleans up their life first, does a few good deeds here and there, tries to avoid some bad things here and there, and then comes before the infinitely holy God of the universe and says, ta-da, Here I am, let me into your presence to spend eternity with you in heaven. But just the opposite is true. And that you come to God recognizing that you are indeed the wretch that the song sings about. You have nothing good in and of yourself. That you are helpless and you're needy like the tax collector in the previous verses. And that you are wholly dependent on the grace and the mercy of God to save you. So it's a very succinct passage of Scripture, just three verses. It's an often misunderstood passage of Scripture, but nonetheless, it's a very important passage of Scripture. In fact, all three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke here, felt that this was so important that it's all recorded in each of their accounts. And so if you're there with me in Luke 18 of your Bibles, I want to invite you to stand if you're able to do so for the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 15 there, it says this, And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these." 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Let's pray. Father, these are your words, and in them contain truth. And Father, this morning we pray that we would understand what this passage means, that it would be clear, that we would apply it and understand it, that we would not only be hearers of this word, but we would be doers of the word. Father, we just pray that we would be focused on what you have to say to us here this morning rather than on the things of this world. Father, we pray by the power of your Spirit that you would bring these things into being for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of years ago, uh, my family and I were able to go to the Rocky Mountain National Park to do some backcountry hiking and camping. We planned and we purchased all of the equipment we needed to be able to do so for over a period of a year. We bought sleeping bags and tents and bear spray and you name it. And we did a hike what's on what's known as the Fern Lake Trail. And that's a trail that follows up this big Thompson River and the Fern Creek there. And it offers some pretty spectacular views of mountain ranges and valleys and waterfalls and river rapids. But after a two-day hike climbing up 1,700 feet in elevation and seven miles, we got to the top and reached Fern Lake. And we stopped and we rested a bit. We took in some water and took quite a few pictures while we were up there. And one particular photo that I remember is one of my daughter Rachel as she hopped from the shore of the lake from rock to rock until she got to this giant rock that sat in the water about 20 feet or so away from the edge of the lake. And I was about 30 to 40 yards away from her. And she turned around and she looked at me and raised her hands up and I snapped the picture. And the picture would have been just like any other picture had I not zoomed my camera lens back a little bit all the way out and taken a picture of her on just some rock with her hands held up in the air. No one would have really thought anything really too much of it in comparison to all the other pictures that I have of her. But what made this picture so unique and so memorable is that where she was at and all of the spectacular background that was behind her. The most crystal clear water you've ever seen. You can see the fish swim through the lake. Snow-covered mountain peaks with Castle Rock that was peaking up 10,600 feet up into the air. Blue skies, pines and evergreens as far as the eye could see. It was a beautiful place to take a picture. But the, daughter of, the, the photo of my daughter would have possibly been like any other photo had I not zoomed back that camera lens a little bit and maximized the photographic opportunity that I had in front of me. It's what we would call stepping back and looking at the big picture. And as I studied this passage this week, what I found is that most people, most Bible commentators, they do the exact thing. They zoom in so tight with their interpretive lens, if you will, they miss the overarching theme of the chapter, and by doing so, they miss the overarching theme of the book of Luke, and they end up missing that big picture. Because for every 
verse or set of verses in the Bible that we come to, we have to understand that a text is situated within a greater context. We see this in the news all the time. We see that 20 seconds of a policeman chasing and beating somebody down, and that's all the snapshot we got, but we haven't zoomed back and looked at the big picture and saw that the guy just beat up an old lady and robbed her purse and all the stuff that happened before that. So we have to pull back a little bit. The same is true with the Bible when it was originally written. There's no paragraph breaks. There was no chapter and verse numberings. Those all came much later, right around the mid-1500s or so. We start to see the numbering of the Bible. And those have been added there to help us find where portions of the text are. And the temptation for most people is simply to look at this section and see, hey, it's sectioned off by itself, and then come to the conclusion that its meaning and its purpose is somehow disconnected from everything else. In this particular set of verses that we have before us, there is a lot of error in interpreting this passage for that very reason. As our brother from Jordan mentioned last week, and when he taught from Luke chapter 13, the only way to understand what's going on in Luke chapter 13 is to look back at Luke 12, and to look back at Luke 11, and so on and so forth, to gain the context of what's going on. And so we need to do our diligence in doing the same thing. Because as I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago, in every story in the chapter of of Luke 18 here, minus one, we have in them someone who has nothing by which to commend themselves, and they are helpless and they are needy. We have the widow in verse 3, the tax collector in verse 13, the children in our present verses, and even the blind beggar in verse 35 are all portrayed by Luke as helpless. They're dependent, needy. They don't have any resources. And not only that, but when we zoom back our lens, if you will, we we take a step back and we look at the big picture, we would see that Jesus is making some very clear lines of distinction in this chapter as well. He's, He's drawing that line in the sand by showing that there's a contrast between two parties in all of these episodes. There's the contrast of the unjust judge and the wonderful provisions of God. There's the proud Pharisee and the tax collector. There's the contrast between those who brought children to Jesus and those who are trying to push them away and so forth and so on. The point being that in order to avoid falling into the trap that this is a verse or a set of verses about being about uh, child baptism or that this being a passage about church membership for children or this being a passage about children's church, which it is none of those things, we have to step back. We have to zoom our lens out just a little bit and look at the big picture of what Jesus is trying to say. And what he's showing you here throughout this chapter is the heart and the attitude of a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's showing you the attitude you have to have in order to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and to enter into his heavenly kingdom. So let's look what it says a little bit more in depth, beginning in verse 15 of your Bibles there. It says this, And they were bringing even their babies to him, so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. As I mentioned before, our Presbyterian brothers and friends might say that this passage is talking about infant baptism. 
that we should dunk babies in water and admit them to the church. And they argue that since people are bringing their babies to Jesus and Jesus doesn't reject them, that the church should do the same thing by bringing the children into the new covenant all the way, they say, by baptizing them. And really what this does is it diminishes and it nullifies justification by faith alone. You and I, we come into a right standing of God through faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith alone. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Nowhere in this passage do we have any such message of child baptism or that's either implicitly or explicitly conveyed. Now it says that the parents are only bringing their children to Jesus to touch them and not to be baptized by them, which Luke could have very well said through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he didn't. So infant baptism can't be what Luke is trying to convey in this particular passage. But what was this about in bringing a baby to touch Jesus? Did they believe, like the, the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' robe, that there's some sort of power in Jesus' hand? What is this about? Well, it was a desire, including a prayer, for their spiritual blessing. It was that God would show favor to them. It was that God might be merciful to them. And it was honestly what any parent would want for their children. In fact, it was even more specific than that. The Jewish elders used to say that when you pray for your child, and you pray a blessing on your child, you pray for three things. First, that the child would be famous in the law of God. Now, that's an interesting word there. That the child would be faithful in marriage, and that they would be abundant in good works. That they would be famous in the law of God, first of all, meaning that they would know God's word inside and out, and they would write it on the tablets of their hearts. And that they would be faithful in marriage, that's pretty self-explanatory, and abundant in good works. Again, you don't have to have two brain cells touching each other to figure what that, out what that means. The father would lay his hands on the child's head. The elders in the synagogue would come together around them, and they would do the same and bless the child, and they would pray for the child. The Talmud tells us that it was a very customary thing for parents to bring their children, their little children, to be blessed by the elders of the synagogue. And in Judaism, there was a, a special day set aside for this. It was the day before the Day of Atonement, the day before Yom Kippur. In fact, they would bring their children that day before praying that very prayer. Now, in Matthew's version of this, as I said, it was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all this account here. It's in Matthew 19, 13. He says, just to kind of fill you in on what's going on here in Luke 18, it says that they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them and pray for them. And pray for them. And that's consistent with this kind of blessing. The kind of blessing in a, a rote form of a prayer, and that prayer that God would pour out on his life or this life, all the, the goodness that would lead that child to become famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and to do good works. And so that's the gist of what's going on here. And so they also wanted Jesus to touch this child. Jesus did everything by touching, 
He healed with a touch. We saw in Luke 5, the healing of a leper was with a touch. In Luke chapter 7, he touched a coffin of a young boy that he would bring him back to life. He even rebuked the lawyers in Luke eleven forty six when he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens too heavy to bear, and you yourself will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Jesus touched people all the time, which is exactly the opposite of the Pharisees and the scribes that they never would do. They didn't touch people because they thought, I'm going to be defiled. They thought, I'm going to get the spiritual cootie bugs, right? But Jesus was completely the opposite in that he always had such compassion and, and tenderness to his touch. And so the purpose of bringing them was that he might touch them because that's what fathers did. They laid their hands on their child. The elders laid their hands on the child as the patriarchs had done. And then they prayed a blessing. But notice that Jesus, uh, that the disciples rebuked them. They rebuked the people bringing the children forward. Now, why did the disciples rebuke them? It doesn't exactly say, but perhaps they rebuked them because they thought that they and, and Jesus were doing way too important work in the world to take some time to get involved with some kids. Remember that they had been given all authority over all sorts of diseases and been given all authority over demons that were subject to the disciples in his name from way back in Luke 8 and 10. And so they were getting involved in all sorts of crazy stuff that would have made their head spin. Things that would have just made them think that on some cosmic level, they were now the spiritual big shots of the world. I remember listening to an episode of Focus on the Family some 15, 20 years ago, and I may have related this to you before, but it was an episode right around Father's Day. And they were playing recordings of people who uh, had called in and they were expressing their thankfulness to God for their fathers and why they were thankful. And I'll never forget this one lady that called in and said that she was upstairs in her room as a young girl. And she needed with help with something in her room, like setting up a bookshelf or something like that. And her dad was downstairs in the living room and was having this important meeting with some business clients. And a little girl came downstairs and said, Dad, can you come upstairs for a minute and help me with something? And the father excused himself and left his clients. He went upstairs and helped his daughters with her bookshelf. And so this woman sounded like she was 30 years or so old and uh, relating this story. And she said her dad come upstairs, had come upstairs to her room. She, the dad gave her the help that she needed for about 10 to 15 minutes or so, not a long time, and then told her, Honey, I need to go back downstairs and finish my meeting. And this lady, she starts bawling on the phone. She's just expressing how grateful she was that her dad thought that she was the most important person in the world. That he would interrupt his important business meeting that might potentially earn the family some money, and he would come upstairs and help her out, even if it was just for a few minutes. This lady was sobbing because it meant the world to her that her dad cared so much about her. So perhaps the disciples here thought, you know what, we're doing too much important work to be bothered by the likes of children. Jesus is too important to be bothered by children. And they weren't, because children weren't considered important people in the first century Israel, which is completely different than the world we live in today. We live in a world that is child-centric. 
We live in a world that's built around them. Parents obsess around their children. Advertisers, marketers, people still uh, sell things, obsess about kids. And they sell most things to your children. And they put all that candy at the checkout at the height of your children to catch their eye and not yours. Well, that's not how it was in Jesus' day. Children had no social status. They were a nobody. Until they could produce, until they could uh, help out and around the house, they were nobodies. So perhaps the disciples thought, you know what, we're too busy. Jesus is too busy for the work that we're doing, and it's all too important for you to come and bother us. And you think that the disciples, after being rebuked, would learn their lesson after this? You're wrong. Because later on in verse 39, we're going to see them do the same thing to a blind beggar. Someone that's on the fringe of society. But then look at verse 16. It says this, Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In other words, he's saying, let them alone. Don't hinder them. Don't forbid them. Let them come. And this really shows and demonstrates that Jesus cares for the marginalized. There is no one outside the realm or the sphere with whom our Lord can take delight. You might think, I'm on the fringe of society. I'm on the outs. I'm not like normal people. And Jesus says, you're somebody I want. You're the person I want. I want you to come to me. His arms are wide open and he invites all who respond to the sound of his voice to come. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if the Jewish society was going to marginalize children, Jesus Christ was not. And this is where we get that song that everyone almost knows. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. But notice that he did not say that the kingdom of God belongs to the children he was going to hold, but to such as these, or those who are like the little ones. And I think this is where one of my heroes in the faith gets this wrong. (laughs) But what is the quality of being a child, and especially those who are characterized as babies that Jesus is looking for and using as an illustration? Because a lot of commentators say that Jesus is emphasizing some sort of virtue that he's seeing in children, such as their innocence or their humility, because of the previous passage ended like that, or their receptivity towards him, or even that they're coming because they trust him. But then that, in turn, would imply that the acceptability of a disciple in God's kingdom would depend upon you having similar virtues, and that salvation is awarded based on some sort of merit, that God sees something in you, which would contradict Ephesians 2 and salvation by grace alone. And that just can't be, because we can't actually say that all children possess the qualities that most people suggest here. Could we say that children are totally innocent? 
No, we know that in Romans 5.12 it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, that's Adam at the fall, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We're all born sinners inherited from our first parents, namely Adam and Eve. If you're looking for something that we all have in common, we are all born sinners. We don't come to churches looking for demographics Like, I'm looking for this type of person, or this color of person, or the person that does this or doesn't do this. You should be looking for someone who looks just like you, namely, that you are a sinner. That's the type of church you need to be looking for. Can we say that children are totally innocent? We're all born sinners. Now, I know from personal experience, and those of you who have children as well, have experienced this and know that children are not completely innocent. I remember a time we had a pastor come over to our house, and they graciously took off their shoes before they came in to sit down and talk with us. And as they were conversing with us over a period of an hour or two, unbeknownst to any of us, one of my little tots, who will remain nameless, went to the back porch and where their shoes were at, and they proceeded to stuff some dog food in poor Pastor Gary's shoe. And this would have been so bad and would have been a whole lot easier to clean up if they had not gone over and taken a glass of water and poured it on top of the dog food. And so when poor Pastor Gary went to leave, he stuck his foot in this cold, squishy sensation in his shoe, And he lifted it up and he poured it out and the sloppy dog food just went down on the ground. Squishy, nasty dog food right out of his nice leather shoes. I'm not sure how long we stayed in that church after that. But nonetheless, some argue that innocence is what Jesus had in mind of children. We know from practical experience that that's not true. Others might say that it's it's humility. Is that what Jesus had in mind? And again, those of you who have ever seen a pair of siblings or watched a couple kids play together for any period of time, know that this is not the case. One of the first things they learn is mine. And I can't tell you how many temper tantrums I've seen. I'm sure you've seen them as well in the checkout lines at stores. I was at Menards on Black Friday, and this little boy was throwing a hissy fit, and he had a brand new toy in his hand. And when the parents would try to take it from his hands, he would scream, Mine! Mine! So loud that the people in the paint department on the opposite side of the store were probably getting the shakes. And so, humility can't be it. Others say, it's receptivity. That must be the character quality that we should try and mimic. But children aren't always receptive. Try taking a spoonful of peas to a baby's mouth for the first time, and you'll see exactly how receptive they really are. Throw a plate of Brussels sprouts in front of them, and then come talk to me about how receptive a child really is. Well, others might say that trust, trust is the virtue that Jesus must have in mind, but that can't be it either. Just yesterday, I was on a a scene of a very minor car crash. There was a couple kids in the back seats, and I was standing at the side door, and the parents wanted us to, to say that their children were perfectly well and healthy, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. And just so you know, we don't have those kinds of superpowers to have x-ray vision to tell you that your kid is perfectly fine. And as I was standing away from the car a bit, this little boy is kind of looking at me, and he's kind of okay with me, and he's got this just no 
expression. He didn't smile. He just stared at me and wondering who was this guy with this bright yellow coat standing outside of his car. I don't think I had a glow behind me, but as soon as I leaned into the car a little bit over top of him and I got into his personal space, his face went with a frown and he started to whimper and get a little scared. And the mother had to reach up and say, it's okay, Bubby, it's okay. And, and so we find that children don't always have trust in other people all the time. So I think these things that people are putting forth by the varying commentators, are are nothing but sheer sentimentality. So what is the innate characteristic of a newborn that Jesus is trying to express here? Is he saying you've got to be childish to receive the kingdom? You've got to be immature, unintelligent? You've got to babble, drool? I like to drool on my pillow occasionally. I know some of you do too. That's not it at all. I think that it's the trait that all of these characters share in this Luke chapter 18 and these stories here, minus the one, and that is the character trait of helpless dependence. Helpless dependence. The widow, the tax collector, the child, the blind beggar, all of them were helpless and dependent upon someone else, namely God. Children can't care for themselves. Children can't feed themselves. Children can't change their own diapers. They can't put on clean clothes. They can't do any of those things. And if they're left alone, they won't survive. In fact, in the first couple of centuries, especially in the Roman culture, if there was a child that someone didn't want, they left them outside, mainly on the coastline, because they knew that when the tide would come, that the child was helpless to escape, and they would be washed away. And Christians would come and rescue these children. They're helpless. And so what I think that Jesus has in mind here is the objective state of every child who has ever lived, regardless of race, culture, background, you name it, namely that they all have helpless dependence. Every child born into the world, I don't care where it is, who it is, is absolutely, completely, totally, actually helpless. And so it is with every child who is born into the kingdom of God. Children of the kingdom enter helpless. We are completely dependent upon God's grace. We are completely dependent on God's mercy. We are completely dependent on God's strength, on His wisdom, His providence, His promises. We're completely dependent on His forgiveness. His provision of Christ and His sacrifice. The Bible tells us in Psalm 3.8 that salvation belongs to the Lord. We are completely dependent upon the Lord for salvation. It's been said that the only thing that you bring to the table in terms of your salvation is the sin that made it all necessary in the first place. The Apostle Paul asked the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4.7, he said, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Every breath that you take, every heart that beats through your veins is a gift from God. 
Acts 17, 28 says it's for in him we live and move and exist. And salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is a mercy. And the only way that you come into that salvation is to recognize your own sinfulness. To recognize that you are helpless. And then you put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and say that you and you alone can save me. There is no other way into the kingdom of God. Because look at verse 17, it says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter at all. Notice, first of all, he begins verse 17 with this phrase, Truly I say to you, and that word truly there in the Greek there is translated verily in the King James, but the word in the Greek is the word amen. Amen. It's where we get the word amen, or this is truth. This is agreeable. In other words, Jesus is saying is that what I'm about to tell you, you can take to the bank. There's no wavering on what I'm about to tell you. There is no flexibility here. This is absolute bedrock, concrete truth. So what is he saying here when he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all? What's he saying? He's saying that those little children have neither the status nor the deeds whereby they have a right to enter into my kingdom. And therefore, no one who claims to have the status or deeds to enter into my kingdom can enter into my kingdom. Only those who know that they do not have the status or deeds to enter in my kingdom can, in fact, enter. It's the sheer helplessness of these children that Jesus is pointing to. They are not those who do, they are those who are done for. Jesus is saying in this passage, you don't enter my kingdom by who you are and what you do. You enter my kingdom by who I am and what I do. And only those who enter that way ever, ever, ever will enter my kingdom at all. He says as much in an interesting prayer in Matthew 11 that Jesus prayed to his father. It helps us with a little insight as well. He said in in verse 25 of Matthew 11, he said, I praise you, Father. This is a prayer. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. He wasn't talking about babbling, gurgling, cooing little infants. And he wasn't referring to those who are actually smart and intelligent people. But what he was referring to was that he didn't reveal his salvation to those who are wise in their own eyes. Those who think that they are smarter than everyone else, they got everything figured out. They got their own plan to come to God, and it's just getting this right mixture of doing the good stuff to outweigh the bad. You know, that's what my grandfather taught me. Grandfather wasn't a Christian. And he said, if you want to get into heaven, you just got to do more good stuff than you got to do bad stuff. That's how you get in. That's a lie. That's not the truth. It's only if you depend on the Lord Jesus Christ who has done everything for you. That's the only way you're going to get into heaven. But he revealed his salvation to those who are like infants, babes, helpless ones, those who recognize their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. 
That's why he's depicting the children as a model for the way that you and I enter the kingdom, because they had no status. They could perform none of the deeds that the two men performed on either side of this story, both the tax collector and the rich young ruler that we're going to look, about, look at in the next couple of weeks. And thus, it beautifully illustrates the way you enter into the kingdom is by who he is and what he's done, and not by who you are and what you have done. You recognize your sinfulness. And you recognize your need for a Savior, much like the tax collector. And you cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So I want to ask you this morning, what is your position in relation to the kingdom of God? As I mentioned before, Jesus is making some clear distinctions here this morning. And according to the New Testament, there are only two reactions to the gospel. Either you are so captivated by it that you immediately enter in, or you are grieved by it. And you are offended by it, and you do not enter. Either you recognize your helplessness helplessness and your need for salvation in Jesus Christ, or you walk away wise in your own eyes, thinking, you know what, I got God's game figured out. And I'll figure out how to get into heaven on my own. Jesus is very clear this morning that if you and I don't come to him just as a little child, needy, helpless, dependent, we will not enter the kingdom at all. There's a prayer that sums up this passage very nicely. I'm not sure who it is by, but it goes like this. Make me, O Lord, a child again. So tender, frail, and small, in self-possessing nothing, in Thee possessing all. O Savior, make me small once more, that downward I may grow. And in this heart of mine, restore the faith of long ago. With Thee may I be crucified, no longer I that live. O Savior, crush my sinful pride, by grace which pardon gives. Make me, O Lord, a child again, obedient to Thy call, and self-possessing nothing in Thee possessing all. Have you entered into the kingdom of God as a child? Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth that it contains and pray uh, that if someone here has not entered in, that today would be the day of salvation, Lord, that they would look to You as their all in all that they would seek you above all things. And for those of us here this morning, Lord, who have begun to look at our works and the deeds we do as reason why we should stand before you someday, Lord, let us just cast that thought aside and remember that it's all because of what Christ has done on the cross that we can enter into your kingdom. Help us to depend on him and his righteousness for our right standing before you. Father, we just thank you for this day and this morning that we've had. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.